I I learned to play. I taught myself to play the bass at the same time my friend Rob was teaching himself to play the drums, and we were both playing in church. So we learned together. And then one Sunday he wasn't there, and I couldn't play bass. We were learned to be a rhythm section together, and then when he wasn't there, I couldn't do it. Yeah, and so that's why I kind of felt with Paul today. It's kind of like I know how to do all this, but I'm so used to doing it with him, you know, that I can't find my key. You know, sometimes our, our, our mouths just don't say what we wanted to say or come out in the right tone, you know. And, you know, it's, it's not a sin. It's just a mistake. The Bible says in Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that doesn't mean Jesus can't save us. We're all sinful, yet Jesus can fix that. And we also all make mistakes. But that doesn't prevent God from using me or using you, even when we mess up. You know, a, a misdeed is intentional. A mistake is not intentional, hurt or rebellion. And as I said, sometimes we make mistakes with our words. And that's what we're going to look at today. I want to read for you uh, James 3, 5 through 10 really quick. This is not our scripture for the day, but it relates to what we're talking about. It says, James 3, 5 through 10 says, So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how small how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. So in James, just writing to the church, he's saying, we've got this thing, we've got our mouth, and and sometimes it just gets out of control. And, you know, I, I remember I, I made a mistake. You know, I'm a member of the Oakdale Area Chamber of Commerce, and and we meet once a month, and we have lunch, and I said with my wife present, yeah, I get, a, I get a good meal once a month. Okay, that didn't come out like I meant. She says, oh, you only get a good meal once a month? <laughs> you know, oops, I made a mistake with my mouth. You know, that's not what I meant, you know, but that, that's how it came out, and that's how I was certainly heard. I, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And our, our last judge that we're going to look at today, Jephthah, he's an example about how the mouth can be a source of mistake or mission. Our mouth can be a mistake or mission. Our, our passage today is Judges chapter 11. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, or if you didn't bring yours, there's one under the seat. Judges 11, and we're going to start verses 1 through 3. It says, Jephthah, the Giadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You will have no inheritance in our father's family, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. 
We're actually going to be looking at some things that are not mistakes, even though sometimes they're words of mistakes. Our first thing is life is not a mistake. Life is not a mistake. Jephthah is described as a valiant warrior. It means he's mighty, he's skillful. It's the same word that's used of David as far as his warrior skill. So as an adult, he becomes a, he's a very skillful warrior. But he's also called the son of a prostitute. But not necessarily. That word uh, doesn't always mean prostitute. It could just mean uh, a mistress. The, the, there, this idea of a money exchange is not in the word or in the context. It could just be he had a mistress. But either way, his mother would be less in status than a wife and even be less in status than a concubine because there's no legal relationship between the wife or between his mother and his dad, even though there is a legal relationship between him and his father. But it puts him way down at the bottom of the list. And so when he gets becomes an adult, his half-brothers kick him out of the family. And he moves out of the area. Their words destroy the family. It seems he's the oldest because he's listed first. And then it says, then his, the wife had more sons. And they kick him out. They say, you know, you're not having any inheritance. You get out. And they treat his life as if it were less of a life than theirs. And it describes his army. When he goes out, he, he gathers together some people and describes them as, as worthless men. What, what that word actually means, worthless, it means they're idle. These are people that didn't have anything to do. And so he comes out and he gives them purpose. He says, he gets them together and says, instead of just sitting around here doing nothing, let's go raid Israel's enemies. And so he makes his little band together and, and they, they have a purpose now and a way to live by raiding Israel's enemies. And we see just with this little family dynamic and what happens when Jephthah becomes an adult, words can either kill or destroy because they destroyed the family or they can heal and bring together as he finds these people who aren't doing nothing and he gives them a purpose. It makes life more or less important, our words. Now, when I had first started college, I was uh, working in a bookstore and my boss's uh, son-in-law and daughter, they were uh, having a child. And it turns out when she was in labor that there were some complications. And the doctor came out to John and said, you have to pick your child or your wife. And John said, I pick both. And they said, no, you don't understand. This is a complicated thing. You have to pick. If we have to save your wife or your child, who do you want us to save? And he says, I do understand. You don't understand. I pick both. See, they wanted to choose who, which life was more important. And he said both lives are important. And guess what? They saved both of their lives. He didn't let them off the hook. Life is never a mistake. And so we need to be careful about our words and our actions regarding life. 
this life's not a mistake. Now, people might make mistakes in our creation of life, like Jephthah's father apparently did, but no child is illegitimate. No baby in the womb is just a fetus or just a mass of cells. The news has been very interesting regarding this this week. Planned Parenthood just refused Title X money from the government. $60 million annually they refuse. Why would they do that? They did that so they could continue to refer women for abortions. But $60 million. Why would they give up $60 million for that? Well, guess what? I looked at their annual report. This is their annual report from... Uh, what it ended at the year uh, uh, 2018. So 27-2018, Planned Parenthood did 332,757 abortions. Now, okay, so 330,000 plus abortions they did. Now here's something interesting. They actually, the number of people they served actually went down. Okay, that's the most abortions they've done in almost 10 years in a year, but they served less people. They also did less of all their other healthcare stuff. They did less uh, pap smears. They did less breast cancer screening. They did less SCD screening. They did less of everything else, but they did more abortions, highest in almost 10 years. By the way, they only did 2,831 adoption referrals. Okay, not not even a percent compared to abortions. They made two hundred and forty five million dollars in profit during that same time. That's after all their expenses for doing business, they still made two hundred and forty five million dollars. So why would they give up $60 million? So they can make $245 million. That, that's twice what they made the year before. And they're serving less people. They gave up $60 million because it's, not, it's more profitable for them to do abortions. And here's something else that came out about this this week. Alyssa Milano, the actress... She, she let it be known that she had two abortions in 1993. And you know what? I could understand her situation. She said, I wasn't old enough or ready enough to be a mother. And I get that. Our physical bodies are able to have children before our brains are ready to actually like rear them. I get that. She was on a medication that could cause birth defects. And honestly, if I think if any of us had to, Choose and, and the choice was you can have a child with birth defects or a child without birth defects. Most of us would choose child without birth defects. So I get where she was coming from in, in having to deal with this hard choice. But at the same time, she made her life more important than her children's lives. I'm not saying it was an easy choice, but that's, that's what she did. And then several years ago, the actor, Chris Burke, you might not know the name, but Chris, Chris Burke, he, he's an actor that has Down syndrome. 
He had his own like TV show for a while. He testified before Congress because he was pleading with them to stop abortions because one of the main groups of people that gets aborted is people with Down syndrome. And he says, guess what? He says, I'm happy. And other people like me that have Down syndrome are also happy and we live full lives. Why are you trying to exterminate us? In fact, the fact that we have Down syndrome, our condition is helping doctors solve Alzheimer's. Don't kill us. Our lives are important, too. Life is not a mistake. We need to be careful about our words and actions regarding life. And related to that, we need to be careful of our words and actions regarding sex. And I mean that in the broadest use of the term. Physical intimacy, gender identity, what we do with our media. Sex is not a mistake. It may or may not be a sin. But it's never an accident. Anybody heard of CRISPR-Cas9? It's gene editing. CRISPR is a way to to use, like, I can't remember if it's a virus or bacteria, but you can inject it into cells, and it actually does editing the genes of the, the DNA of a person. And, you know, I can't find in the Bible that gene editing is a sin. But what we choose to do with it might be. Here's the scary thing. I can go on Amazon.com right now and buy a CRISPR gene editing kit and a basic book on how to do gene editing for $175. Yeah. It's cheap. Any one of us could start doing gene editing tomorrow because Amazon can deliver it the next day. I have no competency to be messing with that at all. I could get one. How we think and act and say regarding abortion, sexuality, gene editing, it all has to go with, do we think that life is a mistake? Is it something I need to fix? Is it something I need to destroy? Ephesians 4.15, Paul writes, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. See, about these issues of life, we need to speak the truth. Are we ready to speak the truth in love? If for some reason Alyssa Milano ever listens to my sermon, I don't hate her at all. And the stuff I've seen of her now as a mother, she seems to be a wonderful mother. I think she could have been a wonderful mother back then, too, or allowed somebody else to be. Are we ready to speak the truth? You know, gene editing can can fix some really bad diseases. 
and it can also lead to designer babies. You got to speak the truth, not my truth, not just what I feel about it. Speak Christ's truth about life and do so in love. Because words can free us or words can destroy. So we want to free people with our words. Okay, we're going to get back to Judges. We've got a pretty long section here, starting in verse 4. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come be our commander and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered Jephthah, that's true. But now we turn to you. Come with us and fight the Ammonites and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to them, if you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is our witness if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander, and Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, asking, What do you have against me that you have come to fight me in my land? The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell him, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. Then they traveled through the wilderness around the lands of Edom and Moab, and they came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, but did not enter into the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Hishon, king of the Amorites, king of the Hishbon. Israel said to him, Please let us travel through your land to our country. But Shihon would not trust Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Shihon gathered all his troops and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Hishon and all his troops to Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the entire land of the Amorites who lived in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And the Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel. And will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God, Chemosh, conquers for you, and we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us? Now, are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon and Orar, and their surrounding villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. 
Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. We have two instances of diplomacy here. Diplomacy is also not a mistake. The first instance of diplomacy is a compromise with friends. The elders of Gilead. The Ammonites are making war with Israel, and so the Gilead elders go to get Jephthah to be the war general. It's kind of like, if you've read Othello, the Venetians come to get Othello the Moor to be the war general. And Jephthah states, he says, why are you coming to have me be your war general when you broke the covenant of God with me? You kicked me out of my family, which is basically saying you kicked me out of the people of God. You broke the covenant. And guess what? The elder said, you know what? You're right. We did. And so they offer something in return. They said, if you come back, you're not just going to be, we're not just going to accept you as part of the covenant people. You're going to be our leader, not just our war leader, our leader. We're going to restore you to a higher position than you had before. And Jephthah qualifies this. He says, this agreement, this new covenant will be, if I lead and I win, then I'll be the wartime leader and the peacetime leader. But if the Lord doesn't allow me to win, then then we're good. Because he'd be dead anyway. So they made this compromise. Because a covenant was broken, they said, let's fix this. We'll give up our leadership so that we can have a war general. And the first thing that this war general does is not go to war. He tries to make a compromise with his enemies. Again, he's, he's using his words. This is a fabulous way for a leader to go. He sends messengers to the king of Ammon, and he says, Why are you invading our land? And the king's reply is, he says, Historically, this is our land. This is Ammonite land. He says, The Israelites, you Israelites, you conquered this land when you came out of Egypt. But it was our land before you guys came out of Egypt. Sounds like what's going on in Israel now, right? This is our land. No, we conquered this land. So Jephthah has an interesting reply. He gives the king the historical context of the Exodus. He says, you know, the Israelites, after they came out of Egypt, they tried to pass through various lands peaceably that God hadn't given them. Tried to go through Moab, tried to go through Edom, and everybody kept saying, no, you cannot pass through our land. They said, we don't want to take your land, we just want to pass through. And nobody would let them pass through. So they get stuck, and they get to a point where they've gone around as much as they can, and they have to go through somewhere. So they ask this final king, can we go through your land? And he doesn't just say no, he comes out to fight them. And this is now this disputed land that they're fighting over now in Gilead. And he says, our God allowed us to win. And from that time, we possess the land. And he says, think about this. When you go out to battle in the name of your God and you take land, you say, 
our God has given us this land and we can keep it. Don't we have the same right when our God sends us out into battle and we win the land that we get to keep it? And you've let us keep it for 300 years. Why do you want it back now? Makes a pretty good argument by the history. Our God gave us this land just like your God gives you your land. We've held it for 300 years. You have no claim on it anymore. But the king doesn't accept that reasoning. In both cases, Jephthah uses words carefully to try and come to a compromise. While at the same time maintaining principles such as keeping covenants and worshiping the right God. It's tough when we're trying to get people to compromise. Another thing that just happened this week, Joe Biden's wife, Jill, she used a very poor choice of words this week to try and help her husband get the Democratic nomination for president. Now, I'm not going to say exactly what she said. You can, some of you young people probably on your phone already looking it up. <laughs> now, what she meant to convey was that some voters might have to compromise something that they think is important and vote for her husband, Joe Biden, in order for them to beat Donald Trump. And she used a phrase that to her generation means to hold back one's bile. It was like saying, this person or this action may cause me to throw up a little, but I'm going to hold it back because the alternative would be worse. Now, that's bad enough to say, my husband might make you throw up a little, but vote for him anyway. But here's the thing. The exact phrase she used to younger generations actually means a sex act. And so her words did more to destroy than to help. She's trying to make a compromise, but she really messed up. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. When we're trying to get people together, boy, we have to be so careful about our words. Colossians 4.6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. It's not wrong, it's not a sin to, to try and make compromises, to try and make harmony. It's not a sin to negotiate. But I sure need to be careful about the wording I use and the compromises that I might make or ask somebody else's to make. Now, we, we have this discussion sometimes in our board meetings about, you know, what should be the use for a church building? We, of course, use it for worship. We, of course, use it for teaching and training. But we also have to be careful about other uses. Because, I'll be honest, we want the community in here. A building that's only being used one day a week, that's a waste of a building. But these other uses, 
do they build up and give life? Do they allow us to maintain principle? We have to think about that. Even in our own families, how do I deal with my own family who might be doing something destructive or sinful? What do I say to them? How do I interact with my family? For me, it in part depends on if they say they have faith in Jesus or not. I can't expect someone who doesn't have faith in Jesus to just automatically act like a person of faith. But that doesn't mean I have to compromise my principles either. It's tricky. And when we're trying to build these relationships, our words can free or our words can destroy. We want to free people with our words and our actions. The last section here, starting verse 29, Judges 11. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and through the Mitzpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mitzpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Orir all the way to the entrance of Mineth and to Abel Karanim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. When Jephthah went to his home, Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. So the last thing we're going to talk about is promises. Promises are not mistakes. Now, I need to qualify this one right off the back. It's not a mistake to commit to something, whether it's a person or an organization or God. I do need to be careful about what I commit to. That might be a mistake. So what's going on with Jephthah? It says the spirit of the Lord came on him. And so he's empowered already to fight and to win. But he doesn't necessarily know that. We know that reading the story (laughs) that he's empowered by God to win. But he doesn't necessarily know that. No prophet has come to him and said, you are now have the spirit of the Lord on you. He's not been anointed by anybody. And so here's the thing. Just as he bargained with the elders and just as he tried to bargain with the king of Ammon and who knows, maybe he even tried to at some point bargain with his brothers and it didn't work out before they kicked him out. Now he bargains with God. And as I said, while promises themselves are not mistakes, I think it is a mistake to bargain with God. See, God may want to use me. God certainly wants to save me. But God doesn't need anything from me. God has also never broken his covenant. The spirit of God is either on me or it is not on me. 
And like Simon in Acts chapter 8, I can't buy it. It's a mistake to bargain with God. And of course, Jephthah's bargain sounds dumb to us. You know, that he'll sacrifice the first thing. It's not, he's not necessarily saying the first person. He's saying the first thing that comes out of his house. And that sounds dumb to us because our houses are built differently than their houses were. Jephthah probably had a house that was two stories. And the bottom story would be where you keep your animals. And people lived on the top. Okay, that should give you a picture, a different picture of Mary and Joseph in the stable. <laughs> they were probably underneath the house. <laughs> but so Jephthah is saying, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'm going to sacrifice to God. He's thinking one of his animals probably is going to come out first because the animals are at the bottom. So it sounds foolish, and it actually is, not because a person could come out, but because God doesn't accept just any old sacrifice. God never says, sacrifice the first animal that you, that you come across. See, God requires a pure sacrifice. God requires a spotless sacrifice. God requires, it required for them at the time, an animal without any defect. He couldn't just flip a coin or do, spin the wheel and say, whatever comes out, comes out, and that's what I'll sacrifice to God. That's just not good enough. It's never been good enough, and it's not good enough even later. You know, First Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter writes, For you know that you are redeemed for your, from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. God doesn't take random sacrifices. And so Jephthah wins his battle, and who comes out of his house first but his pure daughter? He made a bad promise. Now, I have learned over time to try and watch my promises. There are things that I am competent to do, but I don't always have time to get them done. I just this week finished getting my daughter Sophia's vanity refinished and in her room. That was supposed to be, that's what it looked like before. It had stickers on it. And, and when I started stripping it, I found out on top of the, the finish that was there, there was paint below that. And then another finish below that. So it became a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I also found out that I got this, Five years ago, and one of the things I realized is in Minnesota, I have a much shorter window of time to work on stuff in my garage than I had in California. And my work schedule is different than it was in California. So California, it might be in the middle of the winter. I could still refinish furniture in my garage. I can't do that out here. And so it sat in the, I started working on it, and then it sat in the garage. And... And I worked on it a little bit and it sat in the garage. And then I was really working on it. But then we got pregnant again. And my other daughter had 
nothing to put her clothes in. And so we bought another piece of furniture that I had to refinish, and I got that one done before I got back to Sophia's. And so this year I told her, I said, I'm really, really going to try and get it done because I'm close. I'm going to try and have it done for your birthday. Didn't get it done for her birthday. When she gets back in town, she's finally going to see it. It took me five years for something I thought was going to be done within a month. Got to watch what we promise. Matthew 5, 37, Jesus says, Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Promises or keeping our words by themselves, there's, they're not mistakes or sins. But I certainly need to be careful about the things that I say yes to. You know, making a marriage vow is good. But I need to be careful about who I make that marriage vow with. And I need to be careful about the things I say when I'm in that relationship. Keeping our commitment to the local church, that's good. We have membership renewal. We make that commitment. Are we actually going to come? Are we going to tithe? Are we going to be in a discipleship relationship? That's what we say we're going to do. Keeping our commitments to God, that's good. Are we loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Do I fulfill the Great Commission? Am I praying for that one person, that non-Christian that I'm doing life with? I love the way the sisters put it at the monastery. We, we will call it sanctification. They call it living into your baptism. Am I doing that? That was my commitment when I got baptized, that I would actually live like Christ made me to live. Am I working to increase in prayer or my Bible reading, being in a small group? Our promises can free us or destroy us. We want to be freed. There was a, a study done. Researchers were looking at married couples over the course of years and even decades to see if they could find any correlation or cause with why people might break up. They did find one correlation. Among couples that ultimately stayed together long term, and, and all these couples started off the same, but they started looking at their words. And couples that stayed together, five out of one every 100 comments they made about each other were put-downs. Only five out of 100. Those were couples that stayed together. Among couples that would later split, 10 out of every 100 were insults. And as 
the years progressed, if they managed to stay together, the number of insults increased until they eventually broke up. The more negative their words, the more likely they were to split up. The more positive their words, the more likely they were to stay together. And that just made me think, if words are important in my marriage, what about all my other relationships? My relationship to others in the church, my relationship to my community, and most importantly, my relationship to God. Don't want to 